Blog Talk Radio. Glamour Fearless, Diabetes Late Night. Welcome to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Medic, and I want to thank you for listening to our Wellness with a Wow podcast. Tonight, we're celebrating our seventh anniversary of podcasting, and that the fact that there's now over 150 podcasts in our archives available on demand for free on iTunes, blogtalkradio.com, and divabedic.org for you to enjoy. I want to thank you for tuning into our podcast month after month because uh, um, I want to thank for tuning into our podcast month after month because you've given me the opportunity to empower you to glam more, fear less about living with diabetes, as well as encourage you to keep your house at home by learning how to prevent a diabetes health-related complication from occurring. And that has truly been a joy for me and has given my life a greater purpose. So thank you so much for that. And I'd also like to express my thanks to Sony Music for partnering with my organization and helping me make diabetes education entertaining by providing such amazing music in a way that I could tip my hat to my former boss and our diabetic inspiration, Luther Vandross, and connect with his musical legacy. I also want to thank Dr. Greenfield's Cabot Cheese and New Naturals for providing gifts and giveaways to our guests who help us raise awareness for diabetes in a fun new way each and every month. And finally, I want to admit that this diva has an entourage and express my gratitude to all the people who work behind the scenes with me, not only on this podcast, but on my live events, Diva Club meetings, our videos. They offer topics, suggestions, share their concerns, and actually, more than anything, show their enthusiasm for what I want to do. And, and that just um, touches me deep in my heart. I just, it's important that I say thank you. I'm looking forward to several more years together uh, on this podcast, too. Well, tonight we're talking about a wide range of diabetes hot topics, including what, what should you do if you're afraid to eat carbs, why language is important for people with diabetes, what's going on with the Senate's health care bill, and solutions to common intimacy issues. 
That's all coming up with inspiration from Cindy Lauper, courtesy of Sony Music. July's Diva Bedic musical inspiration, Cindy Lauper's career, spans over 30 years. Her debut solo album, She's So Unusual, Diva Bedic has often been referred to as So Unusual Outreach, uh, sort of a Latin common. It earned Cindy Lauper, though, the Best New Artist Award at the 27th Grammy Awards in 1985. To date, she has sold over 50 million records and 20 million singles, and she's in that elite club of entertainers who have won a Grammy, the Emmy, and the Tony. Currently, she's out on the road with Rod Stewart, where she's performing the song we just featured at the top of the show, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, to sold-out audiences. She said earlier this year she was inspired when she saw signs reading Girls Just Want to Have Fundamental Rights at the women's marches across the country. And we believe in empowering men and women living with diabetes. So thank you, Cindy Lauper, for such an incredible soundtrack to tonight's show. Tonight's guests include Susan Wiener, Megrit Fletcher, Susan McCaslin, Patricia Addy Gentle, Janice Rosler, Mama Rosemarie, and you. Call in and ask questions, make a comment, celebrate our seventh anniversary, and share your story. Our phone lines are open at 347-215-8551. Tonight we're going to be playing songs from Cindy Lauper's Essential Collection, courtesy of Sony Music. Now take a minute. And donate to DivaBetic at DivaBetic.org. Your tax-deductible contributions are greatly appreciated, and it's a fun and fabulous way to help us celebrate seven years of podcasting. It's time for another song from our July's DivaBetic inspiration, Cindy Lauper, who I actually got to see perform live when she opened for Cher on Cher's Do You Believe Tour at Madison Square Garden in 1999. Here's a cut from what critics collectively agree is one of the best love songs ever written. It's time after time, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. Welcome back to Daddy's Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Dina Bedick, and tonight we're celebrating our seventh anniversary podcast celebration. <laughs> celebrating celebration, I guess. But we're so excited to be glam more fearlessing with you for these past seven years, month after month, that we're welcoming your call tonight. So please dial in at 347-215-8551. You could ask the Charlie's Angels a question, maybe Mama Rosemarie, or even me. And uh, we'll give you some uh, up-to-the-minute advice and and uh, share your story to help raise awareness in a fun new way. Now, our diva inspiration, Cindy Lauper, is not living with diabetes. But she is living with psoriasis, which is what I have. So we have that in common. Plus, we have a couple more things in common that I thought were interesting. She likes to dress up in crazy costumes. I've been accused of doing that when I wear the uh, world-famous fruit suit. But I do believe in the strength of our message. And collectively, I think she has garnered a lot of awards for how 
uh, her musical legacy from songwriting and uh, working on Broadway to the enormous amount of success she's had in the pop world. And also, probably the most Thing, the most interesting thing we have in common is we both have Italian mothers who have worked with us. Cindy Lauper featured her real-life mother in several of her videos, and I get to feature my real-life mother every month on this podcast. Please welcome Mama Rosemary. Hello, oh, Mama Thank Rosemary. you. Hi. Thank you. It's been a pleasure working with you for seven years also. Did I can't you know believe Cindy it's been Lauper seven has, years. No, it's, it's I didn't know it. She, she was Italian? Go ahead. No, I did not no, know I, that. But good for her. <laughs> good for her. I think that's right. And and I just can't believe it's been seven years of people listening to my tips, seven years of tips. I hope some of them have been influential in their health care. Um, it's been wonderful giving all these tips every month and it's been wonderful to be on your program thank you for having well, we me should remind time. everyone that um you have an your italian mother was actually living with diabetes and you have a son living with type 1 diabetes which puts you in kind of a unique situation where you're a mother and a daughter and i know we have several listeners like that as well so it's important to have your story and to share your comments each month with us too because you know our community isn't just women with diabetes it's their loved ones as well and our biggest statement, I think, at times is just creating a healthcare entourage and involving your friends and family, co-workers in your diabetes self-care. And I know it's important to you and my father and myself and my brothers to educate ourselves in order to help my brother living with type 1 diabetes. I think that um, is so important. I urge everyone to do that. And, you know, we've had so many guests over the last seven years. I'm wondering if any one of them sticks out to you on our anniversary show that you'd like to share. Oh, gosh, there are so many. Oh, my heavens, from the ballerina to background singers to, oh, there were so many wonderful shows. But I think my very, very favorite is uh, Debbie Kay with the dogs. I, I'm just so impressed that the dog that dogs can be trained to help people who have not only diabetes but other illnesses. I think it's just amazing um, that they um, – that we have these people who could train them to do that. And so many people have um, just benefited from this act of uh, having dogs by their side and helping them out. It's wonderful. So I think that's my favorite. There are several. Oh, I just can't begin to tell you how many I really have thoroughly enjoyed. Um, as I said before, from the ballerina to the background singers to the uh, the tennis player who had a uh, pancreas implant. There's so many. Um, the programs have been wonderful. And I've been really fortunate to have been with you for seven years. Thank you for ha- always having me on. Well, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. And I've actually been, uh, every day this month, I've been listening to another podcast from our archive, enjoying it. So, I, I know what you mean. It's hard to pick a favorite, but you mentioned Zipporah Cars. You mentioned uh, the doctor who's from Lifeball. And then, of course, you mentioned uh, scent detection expert Debbie Kay. And we should tell people that not only does Debbie Kay train the dog, she could train you to train your own dog to uh, be a diabetes dog. And as you mentioned, they do use them to uh, for uh, Alzheimer's and uh, 
she also trains dogs now for detection with ovarian cancer, which I think is fascinating. So thanks for being on the show, Mom, and, and hopefully you'll continue because we're, we're not giving up just yet. And I have a podcast coming up in two weeks I should tell everyone about on July 25th, my seventh anniversary celebration continues with a special tribute podcast to Luther Vandross. We'll be celebrating his first record uh, for J Records that came out in the year 2000. But now, why don't we take a minute and tell us what your tip is for this month? Yes. Oh, my tip is a great one for this month. Um, and it's not only for people with, uh, who are helping their diabetes care, but I think it's everyone. Uh, this month, it is to encourage everyone to avoid eating in front of the TV. For most of us, distracted eating is overeating. Sitting in front of that TV with your plate for a night of binge washing could be a sabotage for your diet. And according to the 2014 Cornell University study, it showed that they, the people watching TV actually ate about 65% more calories. So we do have to put down that plate. So Give yourself some diabetes health care and turn off that TV while you are eating. Um, ciao for now. Well, wait a minute. Don't go anywhere because it's our seventh okay. anniversary, and so I decided that I would have put every guest in the hot seat. Are you ready to go in the hot seat? Oh, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> okay. All right. These are questions I've <laughs> pulled across ready. the I went to Google to find questions in honor of National Bikini Day. I'm sure you celebrated that on July 5th. Uh, Villa Italian Kitchen created the first ever pizza kini, a Zesty two-piece swimsuit made entirely of pizza, created from homemade dough, which has been hand braided throughout the top and waistband for a better fit, and topped with mozzarella, tomato sauce, and pepperoni. I'm curious, where would you choose to wear the pizza kini? Oh, my gosh, a pizza bikini. First of all, where would I wear a bikini? I think I would wear that in my closet and um, with a fork and a knife and just go to town and eat the bikini because I wouldn't be caught on a beach with it, that's for sure. People would be eating it off of me, I'm sure. Everybody loves pizza. So, just don't um, wear the pizza kini in front of the TV, right? That's what no way. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, very, uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know how many people would wear a pizza p- bikini out in public. <laughs> if it could well, be you made. might be surprised to you might be surprised to find out that it's actually the cost of it is actually ten thousand dollars. I think that's pretty. That's a lot of dough. Or a pizza, pizza <laughs> it sure is. Very good. It is a lot of joy. Well, thank you for being part of our seventh year celebration. We should tell everyone that if you want to check out Mama Rose Marie, you could actually see her on YouTube. You've, you've filmed quite a few Mother Your Diabetes videos along the years, and they're all available at our Diva Better YouTube channel. So make sure you check that out. And also, uh, you've been on every podcast since our second after the very first one you joined the cast. So people have 149 shows they could listen to your tips on. Now, um, in 1993, July's Diva Better Inspiration, Cindy Lauper won an Emmy Award for her role on the sitcom Mad About You. Let's hear a song that went gold and peaked at number three in Billboard's Hot 100 from her True Colors album, courtesy of Sony Music. This is going to be Change of Heart by Cindy Lauper. Let's listen. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Divabetic, and for the past decade, carbohydrates have become the villain of the health world, being blamed for everything from obesity to diabetes. Here to talk to me more about carbohydrates and why some people living with diabetes may fear eating them is the co-founder of the Center for the Mindful of Mindful Eating and author, Megret Fletcher. Hello, Megret. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Max. How are you? Great to have you back on the show. I'm, it's our seventh year, celebra- year anniversary celebration, so I'm thrilled to be doing what I do, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the show to talk about this topic. Well, I'm so happy for you, and thank you so much for the work that you do. You're helping so many people, Max. Well, I appreciate that. It, it, it has been, uh, it's been enormously fulfilling in my life, and, and I, I really believe that bringing in friendly educators such as yourself and Susan Weiner and Patricia Eddy Gentle, who are coming up next, really gives us an opportunity to kind of like talk about some of the subjects that don't get covered in your annual doctor's visits or maybe don't get covered with you attend a support meeting. And this gives us kind of a chance to kind of uh, spark interest in people and get them to go check out valuable resources like your website. So this is, this is great. And I know this topic is on everyone's uh, minds lately because when you started posting it on Twitter and I started posting it, I had a lot of people uh, wanting to tune in and find out more about it. So when we talk about this fear of carbohydrates, why would anyone really be afraid of that? Well, fear, I think, is a big part in our book, uh, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes. We have a whole chapter talking about letting go of our fear-based thoughts. And typical programs, when we talk about changing our diet, talk about restriction, telling ourselves we can't eat certain foods. And that model is not a mindful eating model. A mindful eating model is learning how to check in with our hunger, check in with our cravings, our wants and our desires, and really trying to find a balance. And how do we turn around and say, hey, wait a second, I've got diabetes. I know if I overeat these carbohydrates, I may not feel my best. And my intention for eating is to feel well. I want to enjoy what I'm eating, but I also want to enjoy after I eat. And so really starting to trust the body is a huge part of mindful eating. And if you're afraid that you're going to do it wrong, that your body isn't going to tell you what you need, it's hard to take that step. If you tune in to all of the hype, which I know you talk about, Max, all the time on your show, it's easy to fall prey to these programs that aren't scientifically based, and also we can fall prey to the latest fad, and that fad often is fueled by fear. No, I agree. and I, I mean, I would also think that some people out there uh, – 
the way they're so quickly educated around diabetes, uh, you know, find out that insulin is used because to cover carbohydrates, and so they think if they eat, if they stop eating carbohydrates, they won't have to take insulin. I mean, you know, I, right. I do think there's these big misconceptions out there. So I could understand how it immediately goes on the no-no list because it just seems like if I don't eat it, I won't, I won't have to take my insulin, and you know, that's not true either. And and like you said, Max, some people do take insulin, but there's lots of people out there with diabetes, type 2 diabetes and prediabetes that are managing their diabetes with nutrition and exercise, and they may or may not also include oral pills or medications, which may or may not be insulin-based. And I think really what we talk about in, in our book is recognizing this fear of eating, this guilt around eating is not productive for a long-term change. So like you said, hey, if I don't eat carbohydrates, then my body, uh, then I won't have to take my medicine or I won't have to take insulin or my diabetes will get better. What we've learned is, is that extremes in thinking around diabetes don't work. We're really actually trying to eat a balanced diet. And the, and the diet that's optimal for somebody with prediabetes or diabetes is actually really healthy eating. It is not, you can't have sugar, you can't eat carbohydrates. That's not a healthy diet. It's not sustainable. We're talking about a balanced eating. And balanced eating includes carbohydrates. Okay, so if someone really wanted to kind of get past the fear, I'm understanding like what you're saying is like they first have to kind of be aware of that. And I know, you know, like my mom just mentioned at the top of the show some of the mindless eating we do, not only watching TV but at work. A lot of us are guilty of eating through lunch hour while we're on the computer. So, I mean, the first step is really kind of actually becoming aware of some of the emotions you're feeling when you're eating. But then how do you, going from there, how do, how do you begin to build some comfort or ease with the idea of carbohydrates and, and putting them into your, your daily diet without, again, being afraid, you know, without feeling like you're overdoing it or you're going you're gonna to regret it or you're going to have some other issues around it? Yeah, it's, it's a great uh, question, Max, and it's hard to try to, you know, blurred out something very quickly. So to step you through the process, the very first thing we recommend is asking the why question. Why am I eating? Am I eating because I'm hungry, physical hunger that we feel in our stomach, or am I eating for other reasons, whether that be emotional or because it just looks good. I'm in the movie theater and gosh golly, I want that popcorn. If we can recognize why we're eating, we can use that information to guide our food and eating choices. So if I say, hey, I'm hungry, and my intention is to feel good when I'm eating and after I'm eating, I might start asking my questions, what foods would I need to eat to do that? Yes, ice cream tastes good. Yes, eating lots of pasta tastes good, but will it make me feel good after I'm eating it? That's a really important question. So we're looking not just at the immediate, what's my direct experience, am I hungry, but what is my experience after eating? And are people writing that down? Are they keeping a big journal around that? How do you do that? I'm just curious. How, 
how do we do that? So I we have a hunger fullness scale that is designed for people with diabetes. And what makes our hunger fullness scale a little bit different is it has a zero uh, listed on it. And that zero represents the physical experience of hypoglycemia, so low blood sugars. And we know that when we have diabetes, we can experience low blood sugar, and that actually does not promote health. So having lots of low blood sugars where we feel um, low energy, weak, tired, irritable, difficulty, concentrating, thinking, we may be anxious, emotional, we may be trembly, shaky, tired, dizzy, that is not a pleasant experience. So recognizing, hey, I take medications that could cause a low blood sugar and uh, checking in with that experience. Hunger, unfortunately, has a lot of overlapping symptoms. So when we check in with our hunger, we're trying to differentiate what's my experience. Once we recognize that we're physically hungry, we might put a number to it. Am I, you know, how hungry am I? Am I ravenous? starving? Am I hungry? Do I have just pangs? Or am I satisfied? And lots of times, if we're not physically hungry, we might check in with that and say, well, I'm actually pretty satisfied, but I really want to eat that food. So you might ask yourself, how much of that food could, would I enjoy and still feel good after eating it? And you might find, I just need a bite. I just need a spoonful. I just need a taste. So checking in with our hunger actually guides our portion choices so we can navigate having a good experience when we're done eating. And this really coincides with the belief that you really can't be in denial about your diabetes to kind of move forward through this issue. I mean, you really have to kind of accept your diabetes, be willing to face it head on, and then really kind of examine some of these tough issues like your relationship around food like you're saying, to kind of even begin to be aware of when you might have this hung, where you are on the hunger scale. It's so, I mean, it, you know, it's just, it's something that I know, like, I've been reading a lot of research about people being involved in, in um, people who are involved in support groups, whether they go to them live or online, be much better with their care than people who don't. And I would think this would be something that would come up because in those conversations with other people, you would begin to want to have a greater awareness for how foods are affecting your moods and your health, right? And, and I think you really pointed out something so powerful, Max, which is talking about our eating experience. We think everybody is doing a terrific job with their food and eating. Nobody has these problems. Nobody overeats, only me. And that sense that I'm alone and I'm isolated actually drives overeating, which is so funny because when we start having these thoughts that I'm the only one who's struggling with food and eating, I'm the only one who's overeating these carbohydrates, that feeling of being isolated, that feeling of being alone actually is a trigger. It's an emotional trigger to go overeat, to go get into mischief. with. So as we talk about it and we realize, actually, this is a pretty human experience. I'm totally not alone. I can empathize at other people at different times, whether it be evening, after dinner, you know, in between meals, during transitions, they're struggling with desires to eat that may not be related to physical hunger. 
that really is the benefit of talking with other people, joining support groups, is realizing you're not alone. Okay, well, we have a couple questions from the community for you around this topic. Uh, I think some of you already answered some of them, so I'm going to um, hit you with them. Are you ready? <laughs> this isn't your hot seat question. I am. By the way. All right, well, we have Deb from Peoria. Hello, Deb. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, she's been living with type 2 diabetes roughly for two years. She's so confused about carbs. How many carbs should she be eating each day? Mm. So that is where meeting with a registered dietitian uh, who specializes in diabetes is recommended. Um, In our book, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes, we try to clear up that confusion around carbohydrates. And there are a lot of different guidelines. But most people find that if they eat somewhere between 45 grams of carbohydrate and 75 grams of carbohydrate per meal, um, they usually are, uh, they'll find that their blood sugars will stabilize. Now, people, individuals that are eating uh, 75 grams of carbohydrate are typically men. Women usually are a little bit less, 45 to 60 grams. That's per meal. And that allows for, and it's not including snacks, so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it does assume three meals a day. If you're active, you may find, hey, 45 grams of carbohydrate, 60 grams of carbohydrate wasn't enough energy to get me to my next meal. And you might need to put a little snack stepping stone between breakfast and lunch, between lunch and dinner. You may need to have a snack before bedtime if you find that your energy level is going down or your hunger is returning. So keep in mind the gram suggestion is per meal and does not include snacks. All right. And um, Andrea, who's living with type 2 diabetes, is an Uber driver, admits that she doesn't really know that much about carbohydrates. She thinks they come, she says, I think they come in bags. I see them at the grocery store when I'm driving around. But people have told me that carbs are in vegetables and fruit. Is that true? And where would I go to learn more about what is and what is not carbohydrate? So my favorite organization is the American Diabetes Association, and they have some terrific, terrific uh, information about learning about carbohydrates. Again, in our book, we have um, a nice plate, which is called the Eat What You Love plate for diabetes, and it identifies the different food groups that have carbohydrate. And if you go to our website, amihungry.com, click on diabetes, you can download the Eat What You Love with Diabetes plate, and you will see grains like bread, crackers, cereal, pasta, starchy vegetables like potatoes, corn, peas, dried beans, milk and yogurt, fruit and fruit juice, and desserts are in the upper right-hand quadrant of this plate, and that's where you're going to find your your primary source of carbohydrates in your diet. So that's where the really, if we're looking for things that are most likely to make my blood sugars go up, that's that upper right-hand quadrant is going to do it. Sure, there are carbohydrates in some green leafy vegetables, things like carrots, but they don't seem to have a big effect on our blood sugars, so we don't typically count them 
when we have type 2 diabetes as a dominant or predominant carbohydrate source. Great. All right. Well, we should tell everyone before we put you in the hot seat that they can get more information at your website, mindfuleating.org, and that you also um, host webinars and other things around this subject, don't you? I do. And actually, the better website for people with diabetes would be the amihungry.com website, um, and that targets um, and that is specifically uh, for people around mindful eating and diabetes. If you click on, once you get to that website, if you click on diabetes. All right, so, Margaret, are you ready to go into the hot seat to help us celebrate our seventh anniversary of podcasting? I'm delighted. Please have a seat in that plush, pink, furry uh, Louis XIV chair with the gold plating. Yes, that's the one. All right, here you go. I hope you're comfortable because here's your question. I was, I was looking at Yahoo Health. Hey, why not? Um, will going gluten-free help fight fatigue and depression? It, it's a great question. And um, I think really right, what we know right now is if you've been diagnosed with gluten sensitivity or celiac disease, it makes perfect sense to eliminate gluten in your diet because that actually is your body saying, I'm having an allergic reaction. There was an interesting study done that was released uh, in 2017 by Harvard that actually said going gluten-free increases your risk by 13% of developing type 2 diabetes. And the reason that researchers speculate that this correlation is happening, obviously we don't know that causes diabetes, but it's correlated, um, is because we they found that people that eliminated gluten in their diet had much lower fiber intakes. And we know that fiber is good not only for our colon to prevent colon cancer, but it also is help in, in managing blood sugars. So uh, when we talk about uh, feeling uh, fatigue, and we have diabetes, a lot of times that is caused by erratic blood sugars, uh, maybe suboptimal blood sugar control, and it's not related to gluten. So getting that A1C to target the low seven, that's really where we find our, our mood and our energy improves. Eating that balanced diet that is rich in fiber, that can come from a variety of grains, uh, that may or may not include gluten is healthy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was the co-founder of the Center for Mindful Eating and author, Megret Fletcher. We should tell everyone again, I, I identified the mindfuleating.org site, plus you have your site, megret.com, and now you just told us a little bit of, I, I, what is it, I am hungry? Uh, it, am I hungry? Am, am I hungry? And it's, um, it's, the website Am I Hungry is uh, an organization that Dr. Michelle May founded. She is the primary author of the Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat um, series that talks about mindful eating. And I had an opportunity to co-author with her Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes. And so that really talks about mindful eating and diabetes care. Tremendous resources there, like you said, webinars, free videos, handouts, downloads, terrific information, uh, both in the online support, online learning, lots of great stuff. Can't, can't praise it enough.
Well, I can't praise you enough, and thank you for helping us celebrate our seventh anniversary podcast. We'll have you back again real uh, soon. Thank you so much. So, so Max, do you sing happy birthday at an anniversary? What do we sing? Uh, you could sing anything you want, or we could let our diva inspiration <laughs> sing for us, Cindy Lauper, because uh, she established herself as a pop icon, a winning awards for Grammy, Emmy, and Tony, and the New York Outer Critics Circle Award, all in this amazing career. And another hit song off her de- debut album, So She's So Unusual, usable, Unusual. Gosh, I'm having a hard time here because I was just thinking, what song would I sing by Cindy Lauper? Actually, this song was originally recorded by the Cars as a mid-tempo rock song before Cindy Lauper decided, hey, wait a minute, I want to record this song, but I want to make it a ballad. So let's listen to All Through the Night, courtesy of Sony Music. All through the night, Welcome back to Zyvee's Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek. We're celebrating our seventh anniversary of podcasting. And Meg Fletcher just said, is it your birthday? It's always our birthday at Diva Bedek. We're so happy to be here. One of the most exciting things, I think, in my journey doing diabetes advocacy was uh, creating the Plate Poetry Project with artist Susan McCaslin. I hope Meg uh, sticks around and listens to Susan at the top of 7 o'clock hour, talking a little bit about an artistic way of talking about your emotions around what's eating you and what's on your plate. That's coming up at 7 o'clock. But right now, we're going to be talking about how words can empower people with diabetes and why some of the language that's being used might be contributing to diabetes distress, which could lead you to pay less attention to your diabetes management. Joining me to talk more about the impact of language on diabetes is our good friend of the show. She's a 2015, I love these award winners tonight. This is really a diabetic celebration. 2015 AADE Diabetes Educator of the Year, the author of The Complete Diabetes Organizer and Diabetes 365 Tips for Living Well. Plus, she starred in Phantom of the Okra, <laughs> a diabetes murder mystery. I'm sure that's on her resume. Uh, and she's also the owner of Susan Weiner Nutrition. Please welcome to the show. Susan Weiner. Hi, Susan. Hey, Max. Congratulations on the anniversary. Yay. Yes, thank you so much. It's it's uh it's amazing. It's it's been an incredible uh it's just it's incredible. I, I love that we have such a big body of work for people to take advantage of. They could hear you on several podcasts over the years as well as other educators and I'm just grateful that you come and join us and help us kind of raise awareness for diabetes in a fun new way each, uh, when you can, because I know you're so busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are such an inspiration, and your dedication to diabetes education is completely legendary. So my pleasure, and I'm very grateful to join you tonight. Well, you've had a busy month. I know you were just in Florida with Children with Diabetes Conference, and then 
uh, AADE. So tell us a little bit about what you've been up to before we get started on the language of diabetes. Sure. I just had the honor and the pleasure to going to a very unique and emotional conference. I actually came back on Sunday, Friends for Life, Children with Diabetes in Orlando, Florida. And this is an incredible, incredible conference with incredible speakers and different tracks where parents, families, grandparents, children with diabetes and adults with type 1 diabetes attend this conference. I was fortunate enough to be the nutrition expert on the grandparents' sessions and the grandparents' panels for a few days where we covered topics such as sleepovers, crisis management, new new ideas in research and what they have to look forward to. It was incredible. And then on Saturday, which was Family Fun Day, Marlene Cook and I, Marlene is a New York Times bestselling cookbook author and registered dietitian. And Max, I will send you the picture of this if I haven't already. We did a cooking demonstration, uh, Chopped CWD, Chopped Children with Diabetes, where we featured a number of healthy recipes um, in dare to compare mode. So whereas children with diabetes love, you were just talking about carbohydrates, they love fruit smoothies, but sometimes the 97 grams of carbohydrates that are in a 16-ounce fruit smoothie is too much to bolus for. So we did a healthier version for 30 grams of carbohydrates. We did a pizza dia instead of a slice of pizza. And not that they can't have those foods. Of course we could have those foods. But we also went over some healthier options. So it was a lot of fun and a wonderful, wonderful conference. I love it. It sounds great. People should definitely check that out. That's Jeff Hitchcock. It's, again, it's, it's cwd.org, I think, correct? Right. And it, it really is an annual conference for families with children with type 1 diabetes. Yes. They meet annually, but they also have meetings all over the country, so it's worth checking that out. A, a really wonderful organization. Yes. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the language of diabetes. I know you just you wrote an article earlier this uh, year where you interviewed uh, Jane K. Dixon. She's a certified diabetes educator living with type 1 diabetes about this subject for endocrine this today. And so what did you find out when you spoke to her about it? Like, um, were there words that are being identified as negative that could be harmful to people with diabetes? Sure. So I have a column in Endocrine Today, which comes out every other month, called Diabetes in Real Life, because it's about diabetes in real life. And there are a number of, of words in language that it doesn't bother everyone who has diabetes, but it does bother enough people that it's worth having a conversation about two words that we all don't like that begin with a C are control, and another one is compliance. We know that people with diabetes have a poorly functioning or a broken pancreas, so we can't always control everything that our pancreas should be doing, but it doesn't really work. It feels like when physicians or other healthcare providers use the word control, you should control what you're eating, you should control your diabetes management, it implies judgment, and judgment does nothing to help people who have diabetes. So instead we use words like target blood glucose range or diabetes management, and we focus on blood glucose levels or glycemic goals rather than control because control is not an actual measurement that people can achieve. 
we also like to use the word diabetic less. Jane said something fabulous in the article, which the word diabetic has ick at the end. The IC in diabetic sounds like ick. And again, for many people with diabetes, it doesn't bother them, but for some it does. If you say person with diabetes. I because I like divabetic, not diabetic. Divabetic, yes. So a person we with diabetes. We at the end of our word. I never, looked, I never thought of it that way. Isn't that something? So Jane came up with the, I have to give her attribution for that. But when we say a person with diabetes, it puts the person first. So I think that that's really, really helpful to put the person first. Because that helps the message. But I have to ask Come you, on. Susan. I mean, I get it. I get this language, and I and I do agree. I've heard this a lot over the years about diabetic and the word control. But you know, you brought up something very important: the judgment. I think the mm-hmm. attitude, and when you use these words, especially when you're with your general practitioner, could really set you off more than the actual word. You know, because people have that average of less than seven minutes in the doctor's office. A lot of people who listen to the show are living with type two diabetes, and I I do think that. The disconnect is the judgment that comes around the disease to begin with, not only from the general public, but also the healthcare professionals. And so, you know, I mean, I I do see the point of this, and I could see how it would really bother someone, but do you ever feel like there's just a prevalence in some of our um, healthcare facilitators around kind of a a negative judgment that they, they kind of imply to people living with especially type 2 diabetes? Max, you hit the nail on the head. My office has a sign on the door which says non-judgment zone. And what we try to infuse into healthcare providers, endocrinologists, CDEs, RDs, anyone who works with people with chronic disease and with people with type 2 diabetes as well as type 1 diabetes, is to listen and to be non-judgmental. When someone has had diabetes for a while or is newly diagnosed, don't assume that they feel a certain way. Don't assume that they know certain things. Sometimes I just ask somebody very quietly and, and really with a warmth, tell me about your diabetes journey. It's not a yes or no question. It's an open question so they can share what's happening with their diabetes what they're feeling now. And that's the greatest way to get information. As educators, I think we want to spew information just because we want to help people. But that can make somebody feel judged. So if someone comes in and you say, you're monitoring your blood sugars, you're cooking healthy meals, you're exercising, they're going to say, of course, because they don't want to be judged by their health care providers. So that's a fantastic, fantastic point that you made, yes. Well, I just think, like, going back to the top of the show about being mindless, you know, I think a lot of us live our lives very mindless of our health. And when you're diagnosed with diabetes, you, you feel like your body might have given up on you or broken down, and now you have to, quote, unquote, fix it. And mm-hmm. I think just that alone sets up problems, you know, because it's just you're, you now have to learn about something that you weren't really – you were taking for granted, so to speak, and most people do – take their bodies for granted and most and a lot of people don't have diabetes to do that so i think like it's even i mean it just goes a little bit further to what you're saying about i i know there's there's judgment from healthcare providers but there's also judgment that we put on ourselves that i did Mm -hmm. to myself that it's my fault that you know i can't control it i mean it's that negative talk that continues in ourselves 
that is, you know, that we project onto everyone and everything around us because we're living with diabetes. I couldn't agree more. I also speak a lot on mindfulness and mindful eating with diabetes. And one thing that I work on in groups is savoring the flavor of what you eat and savoring the flavor of you and enjoying something about yourself. I mean, it could be something like just loving the way your eyebrows look or the way that your teeth are or the way that you give a hug. And just empowering someone to feel really good about something that they can identify with with themselves makes them feel good. And those little small steps and changes in mindfulness will lead to better overall behaviors. And then you just start to feel better about yourself. I love it. All right. Well, now I'm going to switch gears because you're, um, you can't participate on this year's uh, Diabetes and Murder Mystery. We should tell everyone you were on Suspect Boulevard last year where you cracked the code <laughs> to the safe using carb counts. That was amazing, Susan. We appreciate that. Um, but we will be sleuthing again this year, and we're going to Coney Island. So to help us get ready for that, you said you would help me out and provide some tips for people with summertime, with, uh, around the summertime. So what are some things people should be aware of during the summer? Stay hydrated. Make a few small adjustments to keep your blood glucose in target range over the dog days of summer. So in Coney Island, it's pretty hot there, pretty desert hot there during August. Avoid getting dehydrated. Drink a ton of water, a lot of water, especially if you're exercising or you're outside more during the summer or you're doing yard work. It's very important not to confuse heat-related issues with low blood sugars. So you may want to check your blood sugar more often. There's a language thing. I, I stopped saying test your blood sugar, and now I say check your blood sugar so it doesn't sound like a judgment. And do it a little bit more often. Um, I don't know if you knew this, Max, but dehydration can actually contribute to a higher blood sugar level. And that's because high blood glucose can cause more urine to be excreted, so it can cause dehydration. It also makes it harder for your body to regulate its temperature. So try a water infuser bottle to jazz up your water, add some lemon, lime, or cucumber, and make it fun. Great advice. All right, so finally, before we wrap up and you go into the hot seat, um, you're actively campaigning right now to become a member of the AAD Board of Directors. I just want you to tell our listeners about this organization and why you would be interested in joining the board. So I've been a diabetes educator for about 28 years. People could do the math and figure out how old I am. And I've had the honor of working inpatient and in being in private practice for over 25 years. I work with patients, families, healthcare providers, community leaders. But as you know, Max, and all the work we've done through the years, I genuinely, genuinely want to improve the lives and connect with people who are living with diabetes. Um, and I'm on the advisory board of a number of different diabetes organizations. And I really believe that our role as diabetes educators continue to evolve, and we need to have confidence and compassion and inspire people through education. So I'm really hoping to get on the board. The voting, if you are a member of AADDE, please vote. Voting ends on July 17th. If you are someone who has diabetes and works with a diabetes educator or anybody can join and be a member of AADE, even if you don't vote for me, I want you to vote because your voice does count. 
And what does AADE stand for? That's a great question. It's the American Association of Diabetes Educators, and it's a multidisciplinary professional membership organization. We're dedicated to improving diabetes care through innovative education, management, and support. There's about 14,000 professional members where nurses, dietitians, pharmacists, exercise specialists, MDs, and social workers, for the most part. All right. All right. So are you ready to go in the hot seat in celebration of our seventh anniversary podcast? Max, you've known me a long time. I'm always in the hot seat. So let's get on. Yes. Please take your seat. All right. Seven percent of all American adults believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows, according to <laughs> national representatives of an online survey for Innovation Center of U.S. Dairy. Susan Weiner, what do you think is another big misconception about food and nutrition? I hear all the time that if you exercise and you go to the gym or you go on a walk around the block, you can indulge in whatever you want to eat. So once you look at the numbers to see how much you have to exercise to make up for a hot fudge sundae or a very large order of pizza and fries, geez louise, you have to swim laps for an hour to try to bring down your blood sugar and burn off those calories. So you have to look at everything as an overall picture. We are jigsaw puzzles. We have a lot of different pieces to ourselves, and you can't just eat whatever you want and think that walking around the block twice or doing a little bit of exercise is going to burn it off. That's my nutrition mess. Great. Well, thank you, Susan, for being a part of our seventh anniversary celebration. Check out Susan's website, SusanWienerNutrition.com. And stick around, Susan. We're going to be playing some games at the end with some of the guests who might be calling in. Now, in March 2010, Cindy Lauper appeared on NBC's Celebrity Apprentice. My mom and I watched that show, and she came in sixth place. She donated her winnings to the True Colors, which I think is an amazing organization. She also performed a song from her upcoming album, Memphis Blues, on the season finale. But here we're going to go back in time one more time and listen to another great cut from She's So Unusual. It's Money Changes Everything, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, celebrating seven, and seven years of bringing you podcasts with wellness with a wow. Wow. Money, does money change everything? Hmm. I think when it comes to health care, it might. Republican senators just returned from Washington this past Monday following a 10-day holiday recess still at odds with each other over the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Here to talk more about how money might be changing everything when it comes to your health care is our very own Patricia Addy Gentle. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Beth. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show, and, and thank you for being a part of this podcast for so many of those seven years. Really couldn't do it without you. 
Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, I always like to take on the tough topics, especially with you, Patricia. And this one is kind of tough. I know, uh, you know, it's a little confusing for people out there to kind of see this 24-hour news cycle and wonder what's going on. So when we're talking about the Better Care Reconciliation Act and what's being proposed, just kind of help me giving an overview of how it might affect some people who are living with diabetes who might be on Medicaid coverage. Well, you know, there are so many conflicting stories about this bill that it's hard to make sense of all of the details. And for one thing, um, people who do have Medicare, this act, uh, the Better Care Reconciliation Act, would make a drastic cut in your Medicaid coverage and the benefits, and that will affect people with diabetes uh, kind of drastically. It changes essential health benefits rule, um, which would put people with diabetes at risk of being unable to get the care and services necessary. And, you know, when you work with a population like uh, people who I work with, the maze of navigating uh, the Medicaid or the medical system itself is just, it's not easy to navigate. So when you're working with people who really don't have access, people who maybe have um, just little knowledge or understanding and may not have the advocacy or people in place to help them to navigate the system, it's really difficult. You know, my population... Don't you think some? Of, I'm sorry to cut you off, but don't you think some of the pushback is a lot of people believe or are under the assumption that these people on Medicaid are getting better coverage than they do who are paying into the system? Some people do actually believe that, but uh, in actuality, what has your but, other experience been? Have you dealt with patients who are on Medicaid? I have. I have most of the patients I deal with have no coverage whatsoever, but those who do have Medicaid have very limited resources. And when you think about diabetes and caring for diabetes, there are so many different facets. Um, you know, not only do you need primary care, but there's eye care, there's dental care, there is, um, you know, sometimes a need for specialty services like cardiologists, the nephrologists. Uh, for the kidneys, but there are various aspects to care that a lot of our people are needing. And sometimes it, due to lack of care and not having access for such a long time, um, complications have developed, and that's even contributing to more of a need for these specialty services. And that's why it's so important that they stay within some kind of coverage because otherwise we're looking at emergency room visits, more care to kind of stop, uh, you know, from people having strokes, like Luther Vandross had a stroke. I mean, you know, kidney failure, you mentioned that. I mean, there's so many things that it's so important. I think one of the benefits of continuing care for people on Medicaid is just to prevent the complications from occurring. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you hit it. Um, so many people do use the emergency room for primary care, and there is no continuity. You know, you're seeing someone different, someone who does not have your records, someone who's not going to oversee your care and make sure that you're navigating and getting to those specialty doctors or resources that are so needed. 
All right. Well, now let's move on and talk about older Americans because uh, we know so many older Americans are being diagnosed with diabetes. And uh, apparently this act, the the Better Care Reconciliation Act, would raise some of their coverage. So I'm sure there's a lot of older people who are concerned, older Americans, excuse me, who are concerned about this. What do you have to say about that? Is there going to be a change in their care or the services? Well, due to expense, yes, um, because services out of pocket, out of pocket expense may increase, and so uh, with limited resources, limited financial resources, definitely that is a factor that we must consider. Okay, and what about finally? What about prevention and public health fund? I heard that's involved in this as well. I don't even understand what that does. I'm, I'm assuming that has something to do with prevention. How would that be affected? Um, the it repeals the um, BCRA of uh, that Reconciliation Act actually repeals the Preventive and Public Health Fund. So that is really something that um, has proven. Prevention has proven to be one of the things that we really have to keep as an initiative, like our National Diabetes Prevention Program. So there would be drastic drops, and we would be moving backward in uh, our efforts to prevent diabetes. And so there's one more thing that this is the reason why people, if they agree with anything that we're talking about, should really raise their voice and speak out. Uh, What would you urge people to do? I would definitely say to reach out to your representatives in Congress. Tell them what this Health Care Act means to you and why we must uh, consider all the factors involved before we make these drastic cuts. And, you know, I know that diabetes is not a cheap disease, so I kind of went online Googling before the show started to find out some of the things that could help people who might be nervous or hesitant about how what the financial burden would be at these times. I just want to read through a couple of things I found and see if you've heard of any of these things or believe that anything's actually have helped people. It seems to me that there are a lot of programs on some of the major pharmaceutical sites that actually can help assist you with uh, some of your supplies at discount prices. I read that Eli Lilly offers a Lilly Trust Assist, which provides insulin for those in need. I read that Novo Nordisk, who we've worked with in the past, provides free insulin, pen needles, and glucagon kits for those who qualify for government-sponsored programs. And I even read that Sanofi has an assistance program for paying for your Lantus. Have you ever worked with any of those or referred those to your patients? I have worked with those, uh, all of those, and I have often referred patients to those resources. And it works as long as you have a primary care physician and you meet the criteria um, income-wise. Those programs do work, and they're very beneficial. However, there is a sector of people, like we were just talking about, who use the emergency room for primary care, and they don't even have primary care physicians. And to access these resources, the forms have to be completed by your physician, and most of the time the medications or supplies are mailed to the physician, and that's where the patient would pick them up. So if you don't have a physician, if you're not even on board with someone who is your primary care physician, uh, a lot of people do fall out of the loop in utilizing these resources. And have you seen that? Because it seems to me like this is something that doesn't get a lot of coverage. 
Have you noticed, and you're from Atlanta, Georgia, have you noticed that these, you know, have you seen a lot of the patient you're talking about, patient who does not have primary care, who ends up in the emergency room and then falls out of any kind of care, uh, I can't remember, compliance, like Susan Weiner mentioned, that's a negative term for it, but uh, kind of sticks, is, is not involved in ongoing care. Most definitely. I see it all the time. People come to uh, our agency looking for assistance, looking for help, and they don't have primary care. And lots of times you do find them um, in in dire straits where they are um, in ketoacidosis or they have gone without insulin for a number of days. Some are type 1. And it really is a, a burden right now that people are not able to access the care that they need. Well, thank you for taking on this topic with me tonight and kind of giving a, a personal story and, and sharing some of what you've seen in your community with us because I think it's so important that, you know, we have to rally together. Diabetes, obviously there's a strong community online and in the streets, and I think sometimes we just, instead of thinking of what type you are, just all come together under one umbrella and fight for the cause for all of us because this is so important that people have the coverage they need to manage their diabetes. To me, uh, it's a no-nonsense uh, issue, but I understand that there's a lot of pol- politics involved here, but I just think we need to come together and fight for this so people can get the, the coverage they need to be able to manage their health in a happier, healthier way. So uh, in that, on that note, Patricia, would you please um, step into the hot seat? Okay. Patricia Gentle just entered the hot seat. It's heating up over there, Patricia. I don't know how you feel about it because it's like 100 degrees in New York. So I'm sure it might be oh much hotter down in Georgia. All right. Here's your question. Is there any reason you can't reuse a Lancet? Actually, Max, I can think of several reasons why you would not want to reuse a Lancet. Um, one is as as you continue to use a Lancet, the needle, uh, the the part that actually performs the stick and breaks the skin becomes dull over time. And so you are actually um, causing more pain using a dull Lancet. Another reason is most of the Lancets nowadays have a silicon that covers them, and so reusing it actually um, separates the silicon. It, the sheath peels away from the needle, and you may get little particles of silicon in the fingertip. Also, bacteria infections uh, that you want to consider by using um, reusing a Lancet can occur. So there are several reasons why you don't want to reuse your Lancet. Great advice. All right, Patricia, stick around because we're going to have some questions from our calling guests at the end of the show and we'll and, and, uh, get some of your okay. responses. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. And you know what? Patricia has been on almost every podcast, too, in our seven-year history. So check out all of the archive at divabetic.org, iTunes, or at blogtalkradio.com. Those are programs that are available on demand and for free, and there's over 150 of them, including our upcoming Diabetes Mystery Podcast, which will be broadcast in September. Right now, we're going turning the clock back to 1985 when July's Divabetic Inspiration, Cindy Lauper, released the single from the soundtrack to the movie The Goonies. 
along with a video which featured several wrestling stars. I wonder what that was all about. Song reached number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. Let's listen to The Goonies Are Good Enough, courtesy of Sony Music. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I have to tell you, uh, I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and that song has grown on me. I listened to all of Cindy Lauper's music this last month, and that's the one I keep coming back to. I didn't like it back in 1985, but hey, 2017, it's a whole new world for me. All right, well, my next guest is perfectly suited for helping me celebrate a new milestone in the Diva Bedick history, since she's been a part of our history from the very beginning. She actually created our online T-shirt store in 2003. Uh, she's a graphic design, uh, designer back then. Now she's a fantastic artist. She's partnered with me in creating the fabulous look of our websites over the years, as well as has partnered on various outreach programs, including the Broomstick Bash at Halloween and the Plate Poetry Project. Please welcome back to the show, artist Susan McCaslin. Hi, Susan. Hi, Max. It's so great to be back. Hi. Thank you for joining us. It's, it, you know, you're a part of our legacy, and, and it's always a pleasure to get a chance to talk to you and catch up with all the amazing work you're doing. Oh, thanks. It's great to be back, and it's always great to be talking to you and all the Divabetic audience. Well, since you designed that site, you've kind of gone on and you've been doing your own art. You have a wonderful website, SusanMcCaslin.com, and on that site, you mentioned that you're, you state that productive spaces, both physical and emotional, are an important part of your artwork, investigating the protective layers that happen naturally or in, intentionally. Can you kind of explain a little bit about your theory, where you're going with your art to our listeners? Sure. I mean, if, to go back to where that started, I became interested in a man that used to walk throughout Connecticut in the 1800s, and he would stay in a different cave every night. And I remember somebody asking at a lecture, well, was he homeless? And the lecturer said, no, he wasn't homeless. He had a different cave to sleep in every night. So I started thinking about that protection that he needed at night and how he was actually able to create these spaces that would he could protect himself from the elements, he could protect himself from other people. And then I started looking at him more how he would protect himself from the conversations with people. And I realized that I have always done that in my life. I've created this kind of shell around me. And I think that it had something to do with weight also. I mean, up until a certain point in my life, I was, you know, just I was living in New York, walking everywhere. I was in very good shape. And once I left New York and got to the suburbs, suddenly I was putting on all this weight. And I started questioning, was I putting on that weight because I needed some kind of protection from something out, outside of me? And so I just naturally started creating work that was about shingles on walls and making them out of newspaper and this kind of cladding that would hide emotions within it. Um, I, at one point, was making dolls that were portrait dolls that I would 
hide images and different phrases inside the doll that nobody would be able to see. And it was just, I, th- I think it's something that, that a lot of girls going through puberty and then a lot of women as they grow up kind of develop. And I wanted to really address that and to see what, how I was doing that and how I could express it and how I could stop using it as a way to not move forward. So that's what my that's work so has been about for the last I mean, few years. It was really like your, your artwork really became a sense of, uh, in a way therapy for you, right? I mean, like to yeah. kind of discover that you were kind of working on it. And I guess you were kind of questioning like, why are you so interested in doing it like that? And that's what kind of, is that what kind of led you to that self-discovery? Yes, it really did. And it, and also I was using newspaper for all this work. And I I was trying to figure out why am I using newspaper rather than regular paper? And, you know, as an artist, there's a lot of conversation about using archival materials because, you know, if you ever become famous, you need to have these things that, uh, you know, 100 years from now will still be lasting. Well, that really didn't interest me. I wanted to use everyday materials that were in my life, and newspaper just kind of was there. There were stacks of it in my studio, and I was able to dye it and sort of hide the words that were on the page, which I realized I was kind of, again, protecting myself from what I was reading in the newspaper and how we do that every day of our lives. We're always finding ways to protect ourselves. And sometimes it's a destructive thing. Sometimes it's not destructive. Sometimes it's very positive. But I'm more focused on the destructive ones because I want to change my behaviors. No, it's so interesting. And and, um, I guess that leads us into our next discussion about the Play Poetry uh, Project and kind of partnering together Mm -hmm. to kind of address some of these emotional eating uh, habits and ideas, both highs and lows. Tell everyone a little bit about this project. I know it was presented at Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. We also presented it at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. But you recently even hosted a Girl Scout troop about this. So give yes. everyone an explanation about the project and, and tell a little bit about your experience working on it. Well, when we first started talking about it, I was thinking about a plate having one word on each plate, and we would be able to rearrange the plates to create phrases that we would express how we were thinking about food and our emotions or food and our diseases or food and our lives. And originally it was going to be a very clean cut kind of thing. You know, white, all the plates would be the same. All the words would be exactly the same. And I realized that was not really what I wanted. That's not what life is like. Life is about you sit down at the table with a whole big family and there's not enough of the same plates. So they're all different plates and people are talking and people are conversing And frequently people get into little heated arguments or, you know, there might be a child that's rebelling a little bit that wants to have some kind of say about what they think. And then the adults are telling them no and that sort of thing. So I just created all these words, put them on about 110 plates and then started writing sentences with them. And then when you and I worked together for Downstate, uh, you were able to get the donation from, I think it was Oneida, I think it was, Max, am I mm-hmm. right about that? Yeah. Uh, these beautiful Oneida, plates. We picked these black and white plates, and then I made red lettering for those. And on those, we made a whole setting, a place setting, and we made phrases where the beginning would be maybe on the coffee cup, then to the salad plate, then to the dessert plate, then the main plate. 
And when we set the whole thing up, I realized all those words were positive and all mine were negative. (laughs) So as the people were coming through making paragraphs and sentences, they were naturally kind of drawn. These were mostly doctors at that point, drawn to those positive statements. And I think that the, the negative were really revealing something about how we feel about our emotions when we're eating that are we enjoying, are we at a happy place when we're sitting down to have a meal? And how do we get to that happy place and start avoiding that negative space? So um, now I have this. This is one of the most fascinating projects I've ever had the opportunity to work on. I'm so pleased Mm. to work with you. I know for me it started because when I went to Madrid, I saw like a food and politics kind of exhibit that kind of set me off on this and our relationship with food. But then when you and mm-hmm. I talked about it, and we should say, like, you went to, like, the Goodwill stores and got all kinds of different plates. So if you could use your imagination to our listeners, you would kind of see serving plates and, and cups and saucers and dinner plates and dessert plates. And each one of those plates had a different word. And so people could come up to a table and kind of really say what was eating them through the plate. Yes. And it was interesting. Yes. And you actually held a plate, like a plate in front of you, and it said guilty how many people really kind of responded to that. And uh, when it said happy, how many people responded to that. And then the next step was when we did it as an interactive activity at, um, so more at, I think, the Philadelphia Club, the Diva Better Club in Philadelphia, uh, we gave out paper plates and asked people to write words on those paper plates that they were feeling right there. And that, some of that stuff we posted online. It's still in the video form on YouTube if people want to check it out. But what, what, how did it, how did it affect you when you kind of really, I mean, you started to talk a little bit about your words were so negative. Did you, has it changed for you at all? Or do you feel like you're still kind of in that same place with it? No, I think it's changed for me, but I think what I realized is that why it was negative. And, you know, for my own personal story, it was because I was raised by a family where my mother was an alcoholic and my father was uh, not an alcoholic, but drank along with her. So there was a lot of arguing at the dinner table. And I was also younger than my two sisters. So it was a lot of staring at the din- at the plate, eating the food, and, you know, where you, you almost feel like you're going to choke on the food and you're eating it. And food became this kind of a, 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 a thing to help me feel better about myself, which is sort of odd because sitting at that dinner table, I wasn't feeling good about myself at all. So I'm, I'm still not quite sure whether I was replicating that negative feeling and sort of it, I'm comfortable with it. And so I kept repeating it or if I've been trying to, to whether it was a positive thing, but I know that in trying to, to, and I don't want to say just losing weight because it's not about losing weight, but be, about getting healthy. That when I have an orange on the plate, it's not, I don't feel as good about myself as when I have French fries on the plate. And I know that's because when I went out with my mother, we always had French fries and she was in a good mood at the time. So I keep relating to those French fries. And so I'm trying to sort of rewrite my history about me and my relationships with food. And in doing that, I think that's where I started seeing that these words were all pretty negative and I need to start adding some positive words or at least talk to people about what kind of words do they see on their plates and how can we transfer those to positive from negative. 
I, ju- I just think it opens up a lot of interesting memories and interesting dealing with your emotions and dealing with why food is either a comfort or is it really a comfort or is it just something that is kind of hiding the anger or the sorrow that you might be feeling at, at that moment. I know for as me as a child, it was and my sisters are harassing me. My father is telling me to stop it. You know, it's just, I just force that food down. And, you know, I think and that how to a lot girl, of people. Did, no, I'm sorry. How did the Girl Scout troop respond to it that you presented it to in Connecticut? Well, the Girl Scout troop, because they're young girls, they were, I think the age was around nine years old. Uh, I didn't talk to them about it that way. I talked to them about how we, you know, can make, uh, use these plates to write poems. And does there, is there anything that comes up for them about that? And I noticed that there was a, a number of the girls worked together. There was one girl who was not working with other people and she really struggled with the whole thing. And I felt, you know, like I, I thought, Oh, she's having a really hard time with this. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't want to get into a long conversation with her about it. But I made sure that she and one of the troop leaders and I worked together to help her come up with some kind of, of poem. Um, I think, you know, they're, they're young, and I didn't feel like it was my place to start talking to them about negative emotions and eating at that time because I didn't, you know, I didn't really know yeah. how their troop leaders were going to react to that. But they had a great time making up poetry with it. They loved it. I love it. All right. So in honor yeah. of our seventh year anniversary celebration, are you ready to get in the hot seat? Yes. All right, Susan McCaslin, please get into the plush pink chair to oh, the right. Oh, my God, it's so right. hot. <laughs> <laughs> that needed a good laugh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I just lost it, everybody. Wow, seven years. Yeah. That's what happened. All right, Susan McCaslin, <laughs> who's your favorite female artist and why? Who's your favorite uh-uh. female artist and why? My favorite female artist is Louise Bourgeois, and uh, she just passed away in, I think, 2004 at the age of 93, I believe it was. And she was a female artist who was exhibiting all through the time when women artists were really not getting much attention. And um, she just stuck to it. She was, she also, at that time, the, uh, you know, in, in art school, they would tell you, come up with one way of doing a painting and stick to it. Nobody's going to want to have you change what you're doing. And she changed every day. She just did exactly what she wanted to do. It took her a little bit longer. She didn't really make it as a successful artist till her 70s, but she just kept going and she lived every day to the fullest. I love it. I hope people check that out. And I hope they check out mm-hmm. com. We'll post it on our website so people can see more well, about thank it. Well, thank you. Thank you yeah, so much know, for and email uh, me. helping me celebrate the milestone. And, I mean, I wouldn't All even right. be doing this if it wasn't for you. So, you know, yeah, I hope you're doing such a how... great I just love everything you're doing, Max. You're wonderful. It was a pleasure and an honor Thanks. to work with you on all those projects. And hopefully we'll work together on this one because I think people are going to write in and want to know when we're doing the next. We'll have to figure out a way to do the plate poetry project on a podcast. I think kind of yeah. Fun. So um, it would be thank fun. you, Susan. You're welcome. All right, our diva Bye, inspiration. 
yeah, for July, Cindy Lauper says she wants she wants little kids to think of our next song is about dancing, and then to later to understand the song's real meaning as they get older. So here's a cut from Cindy Lauper's 1985 hit song "She Box," courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. Tonight we're celebrating our seventh year anniversary of podcasting. If you want to call in and talk to any of my guests, you can dial in at 347-215-8551. You know, Cindy Lauper became an unlikely target for the Parents Music Resource Center when in 1985 she released Shebop, which included uh, which was included on the list of the Filthy 15 because her song actually talks about masturbation. It's my anniversary. I've been one of the forefront people of talking about sex and diabetes, and here to join me is a wonderful friend to the show. She's a certified diabetes educator, family therapist, and author of several books about intimacy issues related to diabetes, Janice Rosler. Hello, Janice. Hey, Max. Hello, hello. I couldn't imagine playing Cindy Lauper's music and not going into this topic tonight. So thank you for joining us to talk about it. I do think uh, this sexual health is as important as any other uh, issue related to your diabetes and you're trying to manage it. So I, I appreciate you coming on the show tonight to talk a little bit about masturbation and diabetes. Um, my pleasure. Always, always. And I love the topic. And let's talk about the Filthy 15, right? Well, this is actually a topic I've never talked about. So this is kind of a, yeah. uh, you know, seven years. Here you go. This is a new topic. So um, right? I, I'm just curious. Let's talk, let's talk about it first from a female perspective, women with diabetes and masturbation, why they would or would not want to do it. Okay. Well, why they wouldn't, you know, I mean, historically, there have been such taboos against it for women you know, it being bad and, and having religious prohibitions in some, you know, time periods and it just being a very secretive thing. Um, there are, you know, cultural uh, taboos against it, uh, only bad girls do it, all these types of things. But there are a lot of excellent reasons for a woman to to do self-satisfying sexually, to masturbate. And really that's just to get to know her body, get to know how it works, get to know what she likes. Um, the practice alone it helps the body get used to lubricating when it's stimulated. Um, she can uh, use it. For the very basics that some men do, is it's, it's pleasurable, it's fun, it releases feel-good chemicals in the brain. So if you're having a lousy day and you some, take some time to masturbate, you, you release those endorphins, those happy hormones, and you feel better. And uh, research shows that you don't even have to orgasm when you do it. You get a positive mood change 
just by participating. It doesn't have to come to a resolution. The thing is it can help you be more comfortable in your sexuality, more confident, and uh, really lower your stress and, and have fun, sleep better. There's a lot of real good benefits to doing it for sure. And how about for men? For men, actually, there's some additional benefits for men. Uh, certainly, they have the same ones, you know, in terms of it, it being a stress release, in terms of it being fun, in terms of it uh, uh, just being, uh, um, you know, uh, for both of them, it's a physical activity. So you get a, it's not long, but you do get a bit of a aerobic workout. But for men, there's an additional positive, and uh, that is that for men over 50, we see that uh, it can help lower their risk of prostate cancer. And the reason that happens is when they masturbate, um, there is a release from the prostate of some uh, chemicals that may contain cancer-promoting chemicals in it. So, you know, cancer-promoting, cancer-causing substances, and they're releasing this fluid. They're getting it out of their body. Um, That's not the semen. That's just additional prostate fluids coming from the prostate gland. And it lowers the risk for men over 50 masturbating on a semi-regular basis. It can lower their risk up to 70% of, you know, their risk of prostate cancer. So that's... That's a pretty neat treatment, a fun treatment, better than yeah. taking pills and shots, that's for sure. But but there's a few obstacles for people with diabetes when it comes to masturbating. Like I could think of, like the women, the vaginal dryness, we talked about that before, and um, right. I'm curious to know how, they would, how you would resolve that. And then for men, erectile dysfunction, and I'm curious how, how they would resolve that. Well, the vaginal dryness, fortunately, that's, that's – and, and the – the easy piece is that you can use any type of water-based vaginal lubricant. The tough piece is that you have to feel comfortable purchasing it. That's the hard part. Um, you can either purchase it at your local grocery store if you're not too embarrassed to have the, the box in your in your grocery cart, or, hello, thank goodness for the Internet. You can order it on, online, and it comes right to your house, and no one sees what you're purchasing if you're uncomfortable about about getting a lubricant. Um, for the men, it, there's actually, it's actually a plus because if they start to notice that their erections are not as firm as they used to be, and I'm not talking about an age-related change. Certainly younger men have harder, more uh, uh, vigorous erections than older men, so there is a change. But if you see a sudden change that just is so different and that change, that change continues, it's time to get a checkup because you may be having difficulty with the blood flow to the penis. And that would be an early sign that there's some type of uh, heart issue, circulation issue that could lead to erectile dysfunction. If they have erectile dysfunction, there's so, so many treatments, options for men that are available from vacuum uh, pumps all the way to implants. And um, it's, it's, again, just like with women, great to know your body, great to recognize when something's not going exactly as planned. And if it continues to kind of run it by your physician, you will not be the first person to bring it up to your health care provider. Certainly you won't be the last. So just go for it. 
All right. Well, I, I want to keep going with this. But like one of the top problems cited by women with diabetes is a lack of desire. So I, I, I'm just curious, like, if you don't even want to have, if you're not desiring any kind of intimacy, are you even going to want it from yourself? Like, how do you, can masturbation in any way help someone who has a lack of desire? I know you and I have talked about this before, and a lot of people, a lot of women specifically with diabetes don't even realize that they've lost their interest in having sex with someone. Well, one nice thing is that masturbation can help kind of get the, uh, light that fire. I know that I've written this, and I know you love when I use this phrase that men are like microwaves and women are like crockpots. Men get yeah. stimulated much more quickly, get more interested more quickly in being sexual. Women who have, women who have diabetes, first of all, women altogether need more time. They need to be slowly romanced. But women with diabetes, we find, need even more time than that. So the whole notion of masturbating can help teach your body to respond more quickly. So a woman could masturbate even if she's not sexually excited, even if she's not that interested, just to do something because it stimulates relaxation and it starts to teach the body how to lubricate and how to respond and she is more likely to respond more quickly when she's with her partner because her body is already used to that action. You're kind of training the body. So there really is a plus to doing it even when you're not exactly in the mood. And, again, you don't have to climax. You can get a lot of benefit just from the, the, uh, the action of beginning to do this um, self-satisfying action, the rubbing, you, don't, you know, the masturbation itself without coming to an orgasm, it's all a plus. You're, you're guiding your body, and uh, many women find that when they do it more frequently, they actually um, get a greater interest in being sexual. I love it. All right, one more question before we go into the hot seat with you. Okay. Um, I want to go back to erectile dysfunction because I know on a past podcast that was listening to our archives, we, you mentioned that, you know, sometimes a certain one medication doesn't work for men regarding erectile dysfunction. Now, I would think, because we talked about this, a lot of men have difficulty even addressing the issue of erectile dysfunction. If they actually did get a medication and it wasn't working, have you found that they have difficulty telling people that because they would think that they just are not capable, their body just will not do it? I've, had a, I've, I've talked to quite a few men who've given up. They will get a prescription for one of the medications on the market that you see advertised on TV. It doesn't work for them. And they don't realize that if they have diabetes, it doesn't work for, uh, well, it only works for about 60% of men with diabetes. They could be the remaining 40%. That's a lot of men. And they don't realize that this is common. And they give up. They just assume, well, I guess diabetes took this away from me. It's better than, uh, listen, I'm not going blind. I'm not, you know, they, they list the other possible um, complications and say, okay, so I'm not sexual anymore. And I've spoken to guys who haven't had sex in at least 10 years because they assumed that they were not capable since the pills didn't work, and they assumed that the pills would work if, if you were healthy. So they go, okay, we gave up. 
they don't realize that they can still get a healthy erection. There's so many, there's tools, there's other uh, treatments. Like I said, the, you know, the, the vacuum pump, but you can also do injections. You can all do penile um, suppositories. There's so many things for men to try in addition to the implant, which is pretty amazing and extremely natural. Your partner would never know you have an implant. And sexual life can continue. And it is extremely um, important not to give up because when you don't feel good about yourself, when you're not able to connect in that way with someone you care about or just connect in that way because it, it brings joy to your life, it really makes it difficult to take care of the other tasks that you have that, that you must do for your diabetes health. It's really important to, to take care of this piece and nurture it. I agree. I think it's such an important topic. I'm so happy that Cindy Lauper inspired me to contact you to talk about it tonight. <laughs> Yay, Cindy. All right, Janice, in, in uh, honor of our seventh-year anniversary podcast celebration, are you ready to enter the hot seat? I am. Please sit in the pink chair to your right. All right. <laughs> Uh, here's your question. Ouch, ouch. Yeah. When a woman when a woman doesn't want to have sex with her partner, what should she do? Okay. This it's is a tough question compli- because this this is complicated, right? Because this we, it is a, a complicated question. Yeah. Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller have made jokes about this for years. I'm just curious. Like, is there a protocol for how you handle this? Okay, well, first, let me tell you some options. First of all, it is complicated, but let me give you kind of three, you know, one, two, three type of options. Number one, if the relationship that she has with her sexual partner is a good one, then she has, uh, you know, some options. First of all, she's allowed not to want to have sex. No one should be forced to to do anything against their will. That That's a given. But if the relationship is good and there's good communication and she's just not in the mood, maybe she's had a rough day, maybe her, something happened at work and she's just not interested, she is, one option she has is to um, offer pleasure to her partner and say, listen, you don't have to do me. You don't have to uh, you know, do anything sexual with me. You lay back. You are asking for this. Tell me what you would like me to do for you. And that's such a loving thing. There's so many wonderful sexual adventures that they can have where one is giving to the other. And if she's not in the mood, she said, listen, I'll take a rain check. I will, do, I will do you tonight. And then when I'm ready, you know, you can do me another night. So that is a shared sexual experience. If the... Um, Again, if the relationship is positive and she's just vaguely not interested, it's important to know that sometimes by starting the act, a woman's fire will get lit and she will become more interested as things go along. So, um, you know, it doesn't really go exactly with fake it till you make it, but if you're not in the mood and your partner starts hugging you, we know that there are different hormones that are released when, when people hug each other, very positive hormones. 
and sometimes the the caressing and the the loving words can get you in the mood. So if you're not really there altogether because you've had a rough day, you may say, "Listen, what the heck? I, I'm not in the mood, but I'm gonna I'll start and see what happens." And a lot of times you will get in the mood because you're in the middle of it. Um, the third one is if the relationship is strained. A lot of women do not want to be sexual with their partner because they're not getting along or they're in a fight or they're struggling to communicate. It's a good idea at that point to make an appointment with each other and say, listen, we, I really need to discuss what's going on with us. Uh, I don't recommend having discussions in bed because bed is really a place for sexual activity and for sleep. You don't really want to... Uh, to have an argument in the place where you're the most vulnerable. But make an appointment so you can both calm down because certainly if she says to her partner, I don't, I'm really not interested and we've been fighting and I think we should talk about it, it is possible that the partner will become, uh, you know, feel attacked, feel hurt. That's not the time to to have a a warm, problem-solving, mutually beneficial discussion and say, listen, how about if tomorrow morning over coffee or how about in about a few hours we go downstairs and we talk, make an appointment and start to talk about your issues. And of course, if they're more serious, look to meeting with um, some type of mental health professional who does, you know, a marriage counseling, marriage therapist. I think it's great advice. I'm just curious, like, I've known about your book. I gave away Loving and Living with Diabetes like 12 years ago when I first started. Do you see anything changing? Because I feel like this this is, this topic and your information is so important for people with diabetes. And I'm just curious, like in the last decade, have you seen more people speaking this knowledge out or do you still think it's slightly taboo that people don't want to talk about it? I think the biggest change I've seen, and I've had quite a few books since then, so um, even Sex and Diabetes, I've had a few books. Um, the changes I, that I I've gave seen, that one away too, yeah. <laughs> I know you did. I know you did. I'm uh, actually working on a new edition of it. Um, and another book is in the works, kind of, kind of busy this year. Um, I, one thing that I've noticed that has really made me happy is that I'm hearing that healthcare professionals are, are asking when I are asking their patients about their sexual life. When I, oh gosh, it was about uh, 12 years ago, I was speaking at a conference of, uh, from the CDC. There were all of these healthcare providers who were there, a big room filled. And I said, how many of you routinely talk to your patients about their sexual health, about their intimate lives, about what's going on in the bedroom? And one hand went up. This is a room of about 500 people. And the rest of the people all looked on the, at the floor. You know, they didn't want anyone to see that they weren't raising their hand. That was one person said yes. Now I, the room fills with hands. The healthcare providers are asking. Now, as far as the public, I think the public, we've always been very open about sexual issues on on television and in the movies, but about someone's personal sexual issue, it's still tough. 
it's still hard. It's still hard to have that conversation with a healthcare provider, especially now when your timing, the amount of time you spend with a doctor or a member of your healthcare team has really been cut dramatically. You've got to take care of so many other things that sex really gets on the back burner. And like I said before, I think that when you meet with a dietitian and the dietitian says, okay, which one of you is going to read labels, food labels, and who's doing the cooking, support each other, and the diabetes educator says, okay, you know, who's support each other with exercise, all the things that you do as a couple to really promote good health can't happen if you are extremely angry at each other because things are not going well in the romantic area. And uh, I even know one woman, her husband was unable to have an erection, and she just assumed he was having an affair. She had no clue that his diabetes, had, his diabetes management had reached a point where he developed erectile dysfunction. She was furious at him for what she thought was cheating on her. Well, you think she's going to cook nice meals for him? Do you think she's going to shop and read the labels? Do you think she's going to encourage him to exercise? No way. She was so angry at him. She didn't have the information, and he didn't know either. So that's why this topic is so, so important. It starts here. It starts with the connection with the person who is your most important cheerleader, and that's your intimate partner. Well, thank you so much for being on tonight's show. It's a topic that I want to continue to cover, and I do appreciate all your resources. We should tell Tell everyone your website, and then we're going to bring in all our guests on tonight's celebration podcast before we wrap things up. So where can they go to find out more about you, Janice? Well, I do have um, a website, dearjanice.com, D-E-A-R-J-A-N-I-S. That's one way. But another way is please follow me on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is um, at dearjanice, D-E-A-R-J-A-N-I-S. And that's the We're best way to reach so, me. Yeah. And if people want to get in touch with any of our guests, now just uh, go to Divabetic on Facebook and let me know. But let's welcome back to the show Mama Rosemary, Susan Weiner, Patricia, Addie Gentle. Hello, Divas. How are you? Thanks for being a part of the celebration. Uh, Mama Rosemary, seven years. What were your thoughts on tonight's show? Oh, it was very good, as usual. All the programs are so good. I'm so um, fascinated by the topics. Um, you seem to cover everything, and I think that's wonderful. I think a lot of people are getting so much from your programs. We're, um, they are so fortunate to have someone like you have all these podcasts to educate them. It's wonderful. Um, thank you for being um Yourself, I guess, uh, and Thank so faithful you. for all your diabetics, right? So uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, and Patricia Addie Gentle, you ran the Tunnel of Love about intimacy and diabetes on our Diabetic Makeover Your Diabetes Tour back in 2006, 2007. It was one of the more popular interactive education stations. What What was your feeling on uh, the conversation with Janice tonight? Oh, Janice was right on point. Um, and so many times uh, in our tunnel of love with the diabetic um, pageantry shows that we did, the um, people were just so ready to have that conversation. And it was so often overlooked and a little talked about subject 
in their physician's office. So when they came to those programs and it was in a non-clinical, non-threatening type environment, they were opening up and starting those conversations, and we could coax them on how to have that conversation when they did see their doctor. So I truly enjoyed those uh, sessions with those participants. I did too. I think it's amazing. And Susan Weiner, we're talking so much about being more mindful about your health. That was an important aspect to take into consideration when you're managing your diabetes, your intimacy issues with yourself as well as everyone around you. Absolutely. And may I also give, I mean, Max, I want to thank you for having me on the show so many times and for always being so supportive and inspiring. And I, and I just want to say what a joy it is to be on the same show as Janice, because as I just wrote on her Twitter, she has been my anchor and my inspiration as one of the best diabetes educators in the country for so many years. And I love that she talks about a topic that so many people are not comfortable talking about, and she just makes it so real and so comfortable. So thank you, Janice. Great job, everybody. Thank you all for being a part of our seventh anniversary celebration. And I want to thank you for tuning in and being a part of this show for the past seven years and and giving us this platform in order to educate and inspire you. Um, Please subscribe to our DivaBag e-newsletter at divabag.org. Visit our Facebook page and check out my YouTube videos on my Mr. DivaBag YouTube channel. Remember, every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's stay happy and healthy together. We're going to end this podcast with probably Cindy Lauper's most iconic song. She started a 40 to none project about, uh, when she learned that 10% of American youth identified themselves as LGBT and up to 40% of them are homeless. So she set up the True Colors residence in New York City to help them out. Here's True Colors by Cindy Lauper.
like a wave.